This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara ong I'm Logan Ziegler, Administrative Assistant for JMU Civic. This is Abe Goldberg, Executive Director of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement and Associate Professor of Political Science. I'm Ali Behrens, a senior at JMU and a democracy fellow with JMU Civic. The Supreme Court has just made one of the most important rulings in the last decade on voting rights. But before we talk about that, let's take a step back. Congress passed the Voting Rights Act in 1965. It has been widely viewed as the most successful civil rights law in the nation's history. In 2013, in its Shelby v. Holder decision, the Supreme Court gutted a key provision of the Voting Rights Act by no longer requiring state and local governments with a history of racial discrimination in voting to get pre-clearance from the Justice Department before making changes in voting procedures. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote for the court in that decision that treating some states differently from others was unconstitutional. He also noted in his opinion that Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act would be sufficient to police discriminatory voting procedures. However, Section 2 was precisely what was at stake in the Supreme Court's newest decision in the case Bronovich v. Democratic National Committee, which was issued on July 3, 2021. The Democratic National Committee brought the case to the Supreme Court based on two Arizona laws passed by the Republican-controlled state legislature and governor. The first Arizona law bars the counting of provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct. The second provision of the Arizona law bars the collection of absentee ballots by anyone other than a family member or caregiver. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals found no evidence of fraud in Arizona, and it struck down the state's ban on absentee ballot collection. The Ninth Circuit said the ban violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bars voting laws that have an adverse impact on minorities, denying them an equal opportunity to vote in light of the totality of the circumstances. The Arizona Republican Party appealed the case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Writing for the majority, Justice Samuel Alito made the case that burdens may inevitably result in some racial disparity. He wrote, quote, the mere fact there is some disparity in impact does not necessarily mean that a system is not equally open or that it does not give everyone an equal opportunity to vote, end quote. The conservative justices on the court rejected the idea that racial disparity alone is sufficient to establish that a state denied everyone an equal opportunity to vote. Meanwhile, Justice Elena Kagan, writing for the minority, noted, quote, the majority says as little as possible about what it means for voting to be, quote unquote, equally open, or for voters to have an equal opportunity to cast a ballot. It only grudgingly accepts, and then apparently forgets, that the provision applies to facially neutral laws with discriminatory consequences, end quote. Writing for the majority, Justice Alito also said that preventing fraud was, quote, a strong and entirely legitimate state interest. In the wake of the Supreme Court ruling on Bronovich versus the DNC, we are left asking what is a usual or unusual burden to voting and which voting restrictions might be more or less vulnerable to legal challenges. Joining us in this episode to talk about these legal issues and to give us an overview of voting rights in the United States is Michael Burns, the National Director for Fair Election Center's Campus Vote Project. 
Enjoy the episode. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters. I wonder if you can start by giving us an overview of the history of voting rights in this country, especially beginning with the 15th Amendment. Um, certainly. Well, thanks so much for having me on to tackle such a, a foundational topic. And I'll I'll maybe ask for a little leeway up front because I'm going to try and run through like 200 years of history and just pull out like some major points. But I think they're really important to kind of what happened in this one particular case to provide some context of sort of how we got here. Um, so the individual right to vote is not explicitly kind of in the the Constitution, um, but over the course of the United States history, we fortunately had a trajectory of expanding who has an individual right to vote um, through both amendments and legislation, um, as well as the courts basically like reading the right to vote in as sort of necessary to effectuate other rights in the Constitution. Um, but then that brings us up, you know, we had a faction of states that attempted to secede from the country over the issue, issue of slavery, and they lost and around 1870s, we get a series of kind of three constitutional amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments, which are all kind of commonly referred to as the Reconstruction Amendments, and that abolishes slavery, defines uh, citizens, and preserves certain rights for them. And then the 15th is kind of the first one where we get this explicit guarantee of a right to vote um, to men, regardless of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Um, you know, Reconstruction's a pretty brief period, though, and that ends, and we have nearly 100 years of Jim Crow white supremacy, where violence and murder, all manner of economic, social, political oppression, prevent people of color, uh, but particularly Black Americans, from actually being able to exercise these rights, um, including almost totally locking them out of the democratic process. Um, so that brings us up to, like, the civil rights era in the 1960s, which eventually results in the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. And this is probably like the most important piece of voting rights legislation in the modern era. Um, the Voting Rights Act and kind of the amendments and reauthorizations to it are just so pivotal in kind of finally actually putting the 15th Amendment into practice. It outright bans a number of discriminatory practices that were really in effect uh, widely across the country, even outside the South, like literacy tests and poll taxes. And then it kind of has these two main provisions um, and includes section two, which has a process to sort of challenge the existing racially discriminatory voting practices um, that are, are kind of running rampant. And then also like an amazing bit of innovation and kind of foresight adopts what we know as preclearance, which was what was in section five. And the preclearance process in Section 5 basically means that states and localities with a past history of racial discrimination, they now have to get permission either from the Department of Justice or a federal three-judge panel before they can implement any changes to their voting and election procedures. And basically, you know, we've had this 100-year period where we have this constitutional right to vote guaranteed by the 15th Amendment that is just not actually being effective because you just have a number of states and localities continuing to innovate, basically, in voter suppression. And every time something gets tossed out, they think of something new. So we say you can't have the poll tax anymore. And they come up with grandfather clauses. And when you strike that down, and they move to white-only primaries, and that gets struck down. And because of the way elections work and the way the court process works, it just was like constantly this game of whack-a-mole. And preclearance just totally flipped that around, and it said, like, 
if you fall into this formula where we know you had this history of racial discrimination in voting, now you have to get permission before those things go into effect, um, not afterwards, so that those folks can actually have those rights preserved while these things are worked out in court if you want to challenge that. Um, and it basically took us like 100 years to actually really get the 15th Amendment to be fully enforced, um, largely through the Voting Rights Act. And even that took a, a time from when it was passed to really be able to implement that and change these election systems. So it was like a super quick run through of just like some major touch points um, kind of around how the right to vote has ex expanded, kind of especially through the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act to sort of get us up to where we are today. But I think that's important to have in mind sort of just this, this history going back to the founding of the country of needing to dismantle white supremacy and kind of actually provide the right to vote to people of color um, before we can kind of really talk about what's currently happening to the, the Voting Rights Act and the right to vote, um, you know, in more recent history. In your view, why was the Brnovich versus the DNC case so important? And what were the key arguments presented to the Supreme Court? Yeah, so I think to maybe take that in the, the order it came, I mean, I think the case is so important. And to step back a little bit again, is that, you know, unfortunately, back in 2013, in the Shelby County v. Holder case, we actually saw the court take up a challenge to Section 5, which had this, this preclearance process we were just talking about. Um, and what they ended up doing there was saying the preclearance process, like, there were some questions about whether the current court thought that that was still tenable, but it had been upheld for a long time. So what they ended up actually really doing was saying that the formula that says what states are covered was so out of date that they struck down the formula. And once the formula gets struck down, there is no one covered. So then no one has to comply with the Section 5. Um, but I think that's important for why this case matters so much, because basically we lost that prophylactic protection in 2013 and in the last eight years, we've seen just like a wave of states that were previously covered pass a number of very regressive um, voting bills. And what that has meant is that now we're back into this prior era where you have both, you know, the Department of Justice itself in some instances, but also a lot of individual plaintiffs and organizations that represent them have to be the ones who affirmatively bring those cases and try and assert rights on behalf of those voters um, now that those bills are being passed and signed into law in these states that previously would have had to get them pre-cleared. Um, and part of that is the Supreme Court, even in the Shelby County case, said, look, like at least there's still Section 2. You can affirmatively still challenge these these laws through that process, so we don't think that, that we can uphold that. So I think that's why this case was so important is that since that has happened, we've seen more and more groups try and use Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to kind of fill that gap from losing plea clearance. Um, and so this was a really big case because, you know, previously because of the way and how effective even kind of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act had been, um, you largely saw Section 2 cases, like a lot of the case law prior to this for Section 2 cases was about what we would call like vote dilution. And it was largely involved in like redistricting type cases, um, whereas what they were bringing now that we've lost Section 5 was what we would call like a vote denial case, where they're actually trying to use it to assertively kind of do these different types of rights. Um, so the key arguments that are presented, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's interesting, the court basically said, you know, they have some factors and tests that they use more for 
for vote dilution, largely in like the redistricting context. And they basically said, we don't think those apply or fit here as well. So kind of like what ended up coming out of it in the majority opinion was five factors to be considered by courts and kind of understanding sort of how to try and address these types of claims going forward, um, which, you know, we can go through them, but I think there's, there's some inconsistency in the logic of the Supreme Court across a number of different types of cases now um, that I think make this a, a bigger case. But within this context, you know, Justice Alito lifted out kind of looking at the size of the burden caused by the rule, um, which is an interesting factor to try and figure out in way because, you know, in some of the redistricting contexts, the courts have basically said that's non-justiciable because like, how can the courts decide when, you know, a partisan gerrymander becomes so partisan that it is unconstitutional? Like where do we draw that line? But literally the first factor out of the gate in this particular case, they seem to assume that courts can handle that. Um, they talk about the degree which to which a voting rule departs from what was the standard practice when Section 2 was most recently amended, which was all the way back in 1982, um, which again is a, a weird thing because as we just discussed, what the court did around Section 5 was basically say, we think your formula is so outdated by looking that far back for these historical past practices of discrimi- racial discrimination in voting that that's unconstitutional but now they're doing almost the exact flip here in section two and saying, well, we have to look back to what was normal when Congress passed this and then say, is it deviating from that? You know, I mean, that's almost 40 years ago. That's an entire generation. Even just the technological changes in elections since then is, is a bit staggering to me. Um, and then the size of, the, of any disparities in the rules impact on members of different racial or ethnic groups. Um, So again, this sort of like, there's a weird balancing here that the court is trying to do that I think think they get wrong. And part of the reason I wanted to run through some of the history we talked about at the outset was to frame that up, is that without this affirmative right to vote in the Constitution, the balancing seems off here to me. The court was basically saying in this case, they think like, you know, 1% of of voters of color casting their ballots, you know, in a different precinct and needing them to be counted provisionally for some of those offices to still be counted is an acceptable deviation. But on the flip side of that, they are saying that like the state's concern about fraud is a legitimate concern to try and limit these types of access. Um, Yeah, we know from just study after study and search after search that like election fraud is exceedingly rare, in-person voter fraud is exceedingly rare, um, yet the court is willing to take these minuscule kind of findings around voter fraud and say that that's an acceptable state interest and lift that up over what we know is maybe not a large chunk of the population, but large numbers of people and a disparate number of people of color being disenfranchised. And in my mind, like, that should be the absolute flip of what we're actually getting from the court these days um, across kind of those two factors and how they treat and weigh them. I wonder if I can just follow up because this was one of the things that struck me so much about uh, Justice Alito, who wrote for the majority in the opinion, um, talking about uh, preventing election 
in, he stated that preventing fraud was a strong and entirely legitimate state interest. Um, you know, it, it, is there anything that we can take from his writing in terms of, you know, how we how fraud is going to be defined? <laughs> um, you know, we're, we're living in this moment where this notion of fraud is very politicized, and it seems like you know that could that could be just largely construed um, or, or widely construed um, and, and therefore anything is and any sort of um, you know fraud can, can can now be used much more widely as a means to deny um, voting access. Yeah I think maybe going all the way back to Crawford which sort of first upheld like the voter ID provisions um, you know, we started to see that type of language be utilized then by the court, where at the time, that was the one of the stated reasons that the, the state gave, even though they provided no evidence. Um, and I think ever since then, we've just been on an unfortunate trajectory, at least within the federal courts on that front, where, yeah, we do see states being able to state even concerns of potential fraud undermining people's faith in elections and that being held up as the justification for why these types of restrictions should be upheld is even just to give the appearance or like the theater of stopping election fraud getting what i think is is undue weight by the court compared to what should be such a foundational right like the way that the court has written about what the right to vote means to a citizen it does not actually then turn around and afford it that same weight when it sets up these burden, like when it does totality of the circumstances and compares like the state's interest versus the individual's interest or when, you know, Alito writes in this too about looking at the entire system of voting available um, to voters, but, you know, almost uses that as a way to minimize certain voters' differing situations and their need to access the voting process in different ways. Um, and not kind of actually putting the full weight behind that individual right to vote that I think it should have. What do we know from the court's writing about their thinking on voting rights, usual or unusual burdens on voting access, and what voting's res- voting restrictions might be more or less permissible? Yeah, I think it's just so hard to say at this point because, you know, as I've mentioned, the court seems to take each of these cases as it comes up. And you would you would think that there should be these through lines across different types of voting rights cases um, where you can kind of better identify these these core principles about what what is an undue burden or what should be allowed or what should get the most weight when it comes to thinking about about these balancings for what's too restrictive. What can we tell the state they have to provide to voters like where to draw those lines? But, you know, as we've seen over time, the court kind of takes each one bit by bit. And at least the current court and the current court's majority in this opinion has been taking those and kind of narrowing it a little bit each step um, along the way. So while, you know, while section two, I think still survives, you know, this opinion, even though it strikes down the, the two laws in Arizona that are being challenged, By putting in these factors, again, what we're seeing is this kind of narrowing over time um, under the current kind of Roberts Court of what they consider to be protectable voting rights. 
Thank you, Mike. To, to what extent is this ruling about partisan advantage in voting versus actually protecting voting rights? And I'm curious if you can also speak to the implications of this ruling for hyperpartisanship and even exacerbating inequalities of voting rights and voting access across states, depending on partisan control of state government? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, some of what we see happening right now is that there is almost like a divergence in access that is happening at the state level in who has the right to vote. Um, there are a number of states that, you know, either just as, as part of their regular process and a trajectory that some of them have been on for the last several years or in response to the pandemic and some of the reforms that they were forced to adopt to adapt to that, realized that voters appreciated them. They wanted some of those flexibilities or some of those changes built into the system. So there are a number of states that are kind of on that trajectory of expanding access, meeting voters where they are, whether that means like expanding online registration or increasing access to by mail voting or creating more early vote options um, to just sort of meet voters where they are and adopt best practices that we've seen other states have for some time. Um, there's like a whole collection of states sort of moving in that direction. And then there is what I think is probably a smaller fraction of states overall, but obviously is very concerning because it is, is undermining our whole system of government since we are electing folks from those states who are then also participating, you know, in the federal government as well. Um, a number of states that are really going in the opposite direction. They are, are backsliding towards Jim Crow. They are continually seeking for years now to come up with different ways to make it harder for folks to vote. Um, and, you know, we've, we've moved past some of those explicitly racist things such as like, you know, having an all white primary, like that doesn't fly anymore. But there are these new ways of trying to look at things. You know, one of the things that happened in the North Carolina voter ID law that was thrown out after 2013 that they tried to put in, you know, they explicitly, they had looked at data to understand when voters voted by race and then cut out certain early vote days, um, targeting a, a process known as souls to the polls when a number of African-American churches would go after service on Sundays and vote early. And they cut that day out of the early vote calendar. They looked at who had what kind of IDs and then restricted the list of IDs that you can use to vote to IDs that they thought were held more by folks that were more likely to vote for them. So instead of trying to have a debate of ideas and win over voters, they're just trying to look at who's in the electorate who they think will vote for them, and then how do they make it a little bit easier for those folks to vote or a little bit harder for someone else to vote. And we've got this real divergence going on. And if we don't if we don't see federal action like we did around the, the 65 Voting Rights Act to either reinstate the Voting Rights Act with a new preclearance provision or to respond to this newest ruling on Section 2, which is was part of what the Congress did previously, um, to, to expand that and respond to a previous bad ruling on the Voting Rights Act um, from the court, or to adopt these best practices and set a minimum national standard like we would get from the For the People Act that would really take a lot of those best practices that we're seeing being adopted in a number of states and set that as the floor across the country that there is a minimum number of early voting days, there is kind of like minimum access to registration that every state has to provide. Um, if we don't get that type of intervention, these types of rulings from the court 
are going to kind of continue to narrow those federal rules to let that divergence at the state level continue to widen, in my opinion. Mike, just a a quick follow-up on this. Can you point to any states that you would consider to be exemplars for voter access who has laws that you think do bring in significant portions of the electorate, and what can we learn from them? Yeah, it's tough. I think a number of different states um, do have rules that fit their voters, and a lot of them need to kind of interlock. Um, So, you know, there's a number of states that have gone to, like, all-male elections, um, and that seems to work for their their populations. Um, but I think at least having access to buy mail for any voter that would like it is a best practice. You know, we've seen consistently since it's been adopted in states, and even as more and more states adopt it, there is a consistently higher turnout in states that offer same-day registration. It is the best fail-safe for folks who need to update their registration and then be able to vote. Um, you know, when we have voting systems where the voter registration deadline falls 30 days before an election. I mean, that's incredibly impactful, especially for newer voters and for student voters who it might be their first time participating or they're highly mobile and they need to re-register frequently. Um, Having those kind of options to know, like right as campaigns are spending the most money, the news is covering elections the most heavily, is right when the registration window is closing and shutting the door on a bunch of voters and saying, sorry, you can't actually participate this time. Um, So I definitely think like, same-day registration, uh, universal access to by-mail voting, um, trying to provide early voting options that meet voters where they are, are are definitely some of the things that we see that states that have the highest turnout rates are implementing. What are the implications of the Supreme Court's decision for voting rights writ large? Yeah, again, I think it's tough and it just kind of continues to reinforce that I think, you know, we've had this trajectory over time where we have seen more and more people within the United States um, kind of have the right to vote and participate. But like we we cannot take that for granted and we have to keep working for it. Um, And there has been these ups and downs in the past. So so while I think this decision is is inconsistent with a number of the other court's rulings around kind of how we should be treating voting rights um, and that they've relied on pointing to Section 2 when, when dismantling some other things or the way that they've dismantled some other things, like those don't line up with what they're saying now. I think, again, you know, it's just that much more incumbent on us to think about what can Congress do to clarify this legislation, to, to expand this access? You know, are there things that we need to do to actually have a constitutional amendment that addresses voting overall? Um, you know, what are some of the other bigger structural reforms that we need to keep thinking about so that we do keep pushing forward and trying to have a more inclusive, more equitable democracy um, despite what's happening currently? So, Mike, you mentioned Congress acting, and you've also mentioned For the People Act already earlier. Um, uh, so I wonder if we might press a little bit more on the For the People Act. Um, you, Republicans in the Senate recently filibustered debate um, on the the full bill of, uh, I think it's what, 800 pages. Um, And it's the most comprehensive, um, expansive voting rights legislation in a generation. Um, It also deals with ethics and campaign finance reform, um, gerrymandering, um, a whole range of democratic reform issues. Um, you know, given the situation in Congress and and now this 
Supreme Court opinion. What do you see as a path forward for protecting voting rights? Yeah, I think maybe to, to, to step back and be a bit of a, a nerd on the history again here, you know, the Constitution does not have the filibuster in it. Um, it does not require a supermajority to pass legislation. The original rules of the Senate, when it was first convened, did not have the filibuster in it. Um, you know, the Articles of Confederation did have a supermajority. So I think we can almost actually read into the absence of it in the Constitution as an intentional decision to not include it. Um, so, you know, I mean, the filibuster has a racist history and has been used for a very long time to uphold civil rights legislation primarily, um, including anti-lynching laws for like 100 years now. Um, I do not believe we need the current legislative filibuster where it takes 60 votes to overcome the filibuster and actually have a debate. It shuts down debate instead of promoting it, despite what folks might say sometimes in public. So I just want to maybe start there is that like the current filibuster process has a racist history and is unnecessary and we should get rid of it or change it. Um, so that we can actually pass laws that folks want. Um, and I think that that path is maybe potentially still available for the For the People Act. Um, you know, it's labeled HR1 in the House and S1 in the Senate. Um, you know, just recently, um, Vice President Kamala Harris has convened with voting rights advocates. The president has spoken with folks. Um, Majority Leader Schumer has stated that it is imperative and that failure is not an option on multiple occasions to figure out ways this session to try and advance voting rights from the federal um, angle. So, and I think, you know, the legislation we've seen out of a numerous places like Montana and Florida and Georgia and Texas, this legislation session to like really go after people's ability to vote at the state level. And now this most recent decision from the Supreme Court all just continue to highlight the need for there to be congressional action on this this topic at this time. Um, so I'm hopeful that there are still ways forward um, in this Congress at this time for some, some portions of these bills to become law. 2021 marks the 50th anniversary of 18 to 21 year olds gaining the right to vote. What should young people know today about the struggle for voting rights and access and why they need to be protected? Yeah, I think as we've discussed, there's been this this history of expansion of the right to vote. Um, and I I would be remiss if I didn't say in, in my role with the Campus Vote Project that, that young people, that students have been at the forefront of a number of those movements. They've been at the heart of a number of those expansions of the right to vote, um, doing that, the advocacy work to make that happen, including advocating for the 26th Amendment um, and lowering the voting age down to 18. Um, but as we've seen, there's there's always a push and pull here um, when you're trying to expand power and give it to more people. Um, there are reactionary pushbacks, and we cannot cannot stop doing that work, um, you know, to make sure that we're exercising those rights and that we're always continuing to think about: um, Is everyone at the table? Do we have a representative democracy? Um, are people being heard? What advice would you have for people who want to take action on the important issues you've addressed? Yeah, I would say that like one, there are lots of there are lots of ways to get involved. 
um, especially at the local level. I think a lot of folks see what's happening federally. They see what happens in the presidential races and they pay a lot of attention to that. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done just at the local level, understanding local issues, helping folks navigate the system and get involved. Um, so the barrier to entry is actually very low, but I would also maybe caution folks that like doing civic engagement and, and especially like in my mind, doing voting rights work is like the work of a lifetime. Um, you know, it does not, it does not stop. We have inherited some of these struggles generationally um, and it takes generations to make progress on some of these issues sometimes. Um, but we also cannot just show up and vote every other year um, and think that things will change. Um, it really does take staying involved, being informed, you know, but, but a lot of that in my mind happens best at the community level when folks get together and find out what they and their neighbors need and try and work towards that. Um, and that builds power from the ground up. And I think, um, I guess maybe that's what I would say for folks who are interested in getting involved in the work. Like one, like definitely go to campusvoteproject.org, reach out, get in touch with us if you're a student and you want to get more involved in this space. Um, we have a lot of avenues for that. Um, we help facilitate the Student Voting Network, um, which is a, a space that our student advisory board thought of and has started trying to facilitate to connect students in a nonpartisan way. Um, to do work on this issue. And, and as an organization and as an individual, we're committing to supporting to those students um, and helping them do that work. But also within that, I would say, like, think locally, think about how to get involved um, and, and be prepared um, for this to become a, a part of your life and, and hold a place in kind of what you do um, going forward. And Campus Vote Project, of course, has been a wonderful partner for us here at James Madison University, of which we're so grateful for. Um, Mike, we, we have a question that we actually ask all of our guests, and I'm, I'm eager to hear your response. In some ways, I feel like you've been responding to it throughout this entire conversation, but I'm going to pose it to you. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? Yeah, thanks, Abe. I think, yeah, I mean, obviously, one, I've, I've committed myself to, to, to this work. I, I cannot seem to get away from it. I used to do electoral politics and then I went to law school and I tried some other things and just ended right back up and doing this type of work. But that's because I see, I don't know, I see voting rights as being preservative of all other rights. So that is the lens I bring to how do we solve problems and that's to get more people the power for their voice to be heard. And I, I do that work through, through kind of voting rights, but so to strengthen our democracy, I, I think there are some core structural problems we have that kind of undermine that one person, one vote principle. Um, you know, the U.S. Senate gives equal representation based on arbitrary geography and not population. Uh, that's, it's indefensible in my opinion that like the largest state in the country has three million more people than the smallest state, yet they each get two senators. In fact, like now that we've got some apportionment numbers from the most recent census, it takes 22 of the smallest states to have a population barely larger than the largest state. So that's 44 senators to two for roughly the same number of people. You know, as we talked about with the filibuster, 44 senators, is, that's nearly half the chamber under current filibuster rules. That's enough to block legislation within the Senate. And, and those folks are, are such a minority within the actual country of people that are represented. But within that body, they have this massive outsized influence. And, you know, the presidency is determined by the Electoral College. So that sort of like bakes in these inequalities. 
we get absurd outcomes where two out of the last four presidents failed to win the popular vote because of that. So, you know, and then that comes down ballot. We have, you know, mostly winner-take-all elections in a two-party system that I think just leads to a lot of negative outcomes, even down ballot. So I think there's like some real structural things to address. But the one thing that I would do to actually strengthen our democracy would be to invest just so heavily in civics education. There are just like a number of different structures that we could put in place to fix those inequalities. But like we need a population that's prepared to have those debates, to think about them critically, to think about the future that we want to have, to envision it and think about how we get there together. And I just don't think we can do that without providing folks the knowledge and skills to kind of be prepared to engage as citizens in that type of process to, to make those structural changes because we have to do that work together. Um, so, you know, I think there's like the Civic Secure Democracy Act would be a great down payment, but more should follow that. Um, you know, a number of partners that we work with in this space that, that do more of the curriculum end of things have the, you know, the Educating for American Democracy roadmap. So I think like implementing that and really just trying to think like, how do we really invest, invest in ourselves through civics education so that we have a citizenry that's ready to engage in the debates and discussions about how do we address those structural issues so that we can have like an anti-racist, equitable democracy because we're not there yet and we, we still have more work to do to continue to move in that direction. This sounds like the work of a lifetime, Mike. Um, this has been Mike Burns, National Director for the Fair Election Center's Campus Vote Project. Thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters and for all of the work you do at a nonpartisan organization working to expand voting rights. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu/civic. Until next time.